Welcome to The Saint Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. How are you guys doing? You good? Okay, guys, I heard about five and a half people. I said, how are you guys doing? Come on. Let's make some noise. Come on. There we go. There we go. Let's also welcome online one more time. Let's, let's give them a round of applause, wherever they're watching from. Great. Guys, it's been a while since I've been um, part of the Hackney 11, and I need to say I particularly missed it, especially the family worship times. I don't know about you guys, but you kind of walk in a little bit grumpy, kind of this has been a long week, wherever you come in, and then Lisa gets on the stage and starts doing the move, and then you start doing the move, you start busting a little two-step, and all of a sudden you're like halfway between like auditioning for like Strictly Come Dancing and like being the cabin crew attendant trying to work things out, right? It's a bit weird. And I particularly love the little kids as well when they come up. Some of them are like... Absolutely, this is my moment, mum and dad. Like, I'm owning the stage. And you can stay there, but stay a little close, because I might even crowd surf, who knows? And then some of the other kids are like, absolute zero interest, right? They're just like, I just had my baby Chino from Wave or Vicolo, and yeah, I couldn't be bothered. I just want to go to kids too, and let me go. You know, I love children, I love children. I actually um, once heard about this three-year-old in church, and he learns the Lord's Prayer, and he comes back home, and he says it's his parent, he says, this is it. Our father who does art in heaven. Harold is his name. <laughs> and the parents said around like, what is this kid on about? I heard another story um, once as well about a mum who was doing dinner. And um, she invites loads of people. And she turns to her six-year-old, dinner, uh, six-year-old at the dinner table. And she says, honey, would you like to say prayers? She's like, I don't even know where to start. And the mum's like, just, just say whatever you heard mum say. So the six-year-old bows her head and she says, Lord, why did I invite so many people for dinner? <laughs> I, guys, I've got a really bad sense of humor, just letting you know. Um, one more, one more. Um, a, dad, <laughs> a dad, he was preparing pancakes for his oldest son, Ollie, who's five, and his youngest son, Theo, who's three, started seeing that they were arguing about who wanted the first pancake. And the dad, being a good Christian father, saw this at the time uh, to teach about Jesus. And he says to his younger children, you know what? If Jesus was here, he would say to my younger brother, you take the pancake. You can have it. I can wait. So Ollie, the older brother, turns to Fio and says, all right, you be Jesus. And he says, (laughs) and Fio's like, what the hell? Anyway, I love children. That's what we'll have a little bit of fun this morning. Well, guys, if you've got your Bible, I wonder whether you'd turn to um, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I figured we'll start reading the Bible. Is that okay? All right, and you're going to have to talk back to me a little bit. I promise I won't preach unless you guys talk back to me. I'll stand here. I'm, I'm, I'm all right with awkward silences. So John chapter 20. And just to say, if you're out, uh, without some form of the Bible, the words will come up on the walls uh, when I read them anyway. But today I would really encourage you, if you're the note-taking type, to really go along at your own pace. So if you've got a highlight or a pen or whatever you do, or whether you're just like a kind of an audible listener, to really just take note because um, we're not going to stray too much from John 20. We're going to stay pretty much in that text the whole time. Now, um, some of you might know this passage really, really well. Mary visits the, ch- the tomb early on Sunday morning. Um, and sees that the guards, uh, sorry, sees that the stone that guards the tomb has been rolled away. And she goes to the other disciples and says, Hey, I don't know where they've taken Jesus' body. They go, they realize Jesus is 
risen from the dead, and the rest is history. That story, the great story, the story of Christian faith, the reason why we're all here today. But what we often forget when we read the resurrection story is that what is obvious to us today wasn't so obvious for those in the moment, in that miracle moment. It's kind of what, like when you watch Netflix, right? And you're going through the series, you're like series one, and there's something really strange about that character. You can't really pin down. You're like, what is it? What is it? And then after like binge watching for the whole weekend, amen? Amen? We can be a bit honest in church. <laughs> after, after binge watching for the whole weekend, you get to series season three, and like they finally go deep, do a deep dive into that character. And you're like, oh my days, that was it. You like punch the person you're sitting next to. You're like, I knew it, I knew it. I knew that person was a weirdo. And <laughs> it's kind of similar with the resurrection. Jesus isn't a weirdo. But what we understand is that 2,000 years later, we read the resurrection story in light of understanding Easter Sunday. So we read about the resurrection in light of, we read about the crucifixion, sorry, in light of the resurrection. We read this narrative in light of the evidence we have. And we wonder why the disciples didn't get it. But we must remember for them, the crucifixion spelled a puzzling and disturbing end to the hopes that they placed in Jesus. It didn't make any sense. They were living it out, live and direct. The clues remained a mystery. Until that is, they encountered the risen Lord. So John 20 is more than a chapter in a book. It's the moment where the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle starts to fall into place and they realize all that has happened before. And so it's my hope today by looking at the people specifically involved in this narrative, the disciples, we can learn what true godly resilience looks like. Amen? Amen. That's my hope for the next 20 to 30 minutes. Right, so John 20, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV version. It says this. Early on the first day of the week, whilst it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in and saw the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Here's the declaration for today. I don't know who you are, but I feel that God wanted me to share today that it's time to come back. All right, you guys with me? It's time to come back. And I'm not just saying it to be cute. I'm not saying it to be relevant. I'm not saying it to be fun. I'm saying it because I believe it. It's time to come back. And I know that it seems a bit like a motivational thing, but I promise when we unpack this, we're going to understand it. It's time to come back. And if you believe it, I need you to say it with me one more time. Come on. It's time to come back. Amen. Amen. Let me pray before we talk about what this actually means for us. Lord Jesus, 
we sit here 2,000 years later in light of the resurrection narrative, knowing that it's not just an empty tomb, but a risen Lord. And God, we ask that as we unpack this passage today, that you would speak to us, Lord, about what it means to come back in our own lives, what it means to go through adversity, and trials, and sufferings, and come back to knowing you. Lord, we ask for your spirit in this room. In Jesus' name. And the people said, amen, amen. Dr. Paul Brand, who was a world-renowned orthopedic specialist and leprosy surgeon, wrote a fascinating book with his co-author, Philip Yancey, called a gift, The Gift of Pain, The Gift That Nobody Wants. And in this book, Dr. Paul Brand tells a story about his time during medical school. He writes about his school administrator, a man uh, whose name was Mr. Bryce, who had a serious and painful circulation problem in his leg, partly caused by excessive smoking. The problem was also that Mr. Bryce refused to allow for amputation for the leg to be cut off. Then, finally, when the pain became too much to bear, Mr. Bryce cried out, I'm done with that darn leg. I hate it. I hate it. Take it off. Take it off. So surgery was scheduled immediately, but before the operation, Mr. Bryce asked the surgeon, much to the surprise of all, what do they do with legs after they've been removed? Well, we may take a biopsy or explore them, but after we incinerate them, hmm, Mr. Bryce said, I think I would like you to preserve my leg in a pickling jar, <laughs> much to the surprise of all the people. And then once I have that leg, I will put it on my mantle shelf. And then as I sit in my armchair, I will taunt that leg. Ha, you can't hurt me anymore. Ultimately, Mr. Bryce got his wish. But unfortunately, the despised leg had the last laugh. You see, after the surgery, Mr. Bryce suffered from something called phantom limb pain, which means that somehow locked in his memory were the, were the ideas and the, the sensations associated with that leg. So even after the wound had healed, Mr. Bryce could still feel this excruciating pressure of swelling as the muscles cramped and itched and throbbed. Dr. Paul Brand goes on to write, the wound had healed, but in his mind, the leg lived on hurting him as much as ever. The leg, which should have been amputated two years before, had now achieved an independent existence in the mind of Mr. Bryce. And as I heard this story, I thought, shame is a little bit like that, isn't it? When we've done something wrong, something that we're not proud of, perhaps some sin greatly that we feel like we've let a person down or someone that we love. We, especially us Christians, can be obsessed by the memory of some mistake that we made in the past, some sin committed, some, so much so that it never leaves us. We, it it, it kind of takes on this independent existence outside of the event itself. We can be so obsessed with this. And shame leaves scars, it, it cripples our devotional life, our relationship with others, our joy and our outlook. Similarly, trauma does the same. I read this week about, um, some of you might have heard, I read this week about a 15-year-old girl who goes by the name of Child Q. Um, they've changed her name for obvious reasons. You might have heard the story. And um, 
In a safeguarding review initiated by Hackney Council, it was found that Charles Q had been strip-searched during her menstrual cycle by police who were called by teachers after they believed she was smelling of cannabis and maybe had some drugs hidden somewhere. So the school was visited by four officers, including two women who carried out the search of the girl while the teachers remained outside the room. And what happened was that her mother was not contacted, which means informed consent was not taken. Subsequently, no drugs were found. But the bleakest finding is that racism is likely to have been an influencing factor, it said, in the decision by the police to undertake the strip search. It's been unanimously, unanimously, ugh, can't say that word. Can someone help me out? Unanimously, there we go, tongue-tied. Agreed now that that strip search should have never taken place. Yet I wonder now what a situation like that might do to her. Will she now go into schools, the same place she's meant to feel safe and have this trauma? Will she be nervous every time she hears sirens or walks past a police station? I wonder what that experience might do. Will she have difficulties relating to authority now? I pray and I hope not in Jesus' name. But the thing about trauma is that it leaves deep, deep wounds, doesn't it? It scars sometimes. And if you've ever gone through the trauma of losing a loved one, or perhaps something illegitimate and unlawful and evil happened to you once, perhaps someone invaded your space in ways they shouldn't have. And as a result, we now have this deep wound, whether it's shame or trauma. You know, both of these things, shame and trauma, even after they've been resolved, even after the situation has gone on like child Q, shame, trauma, failure, regret, or some other hit that we get from the world, maybe it's a diagnosis you received when you were living such a normal life, only to hear that you're never going to be able to live life the same way. Or maybe you don't have as long as you thought you had. Maybe it's a relational area, a business, a partnership, a friendship, even a marriage that broke down. I know for some, it's vocational, it's career. It's this idea that I've worked so hard, I've worked my socks off only to be laid off by that job or to be missed by that promotion again. Whether it's a diagnosis, a sim problem, a relational breakdown, being overlooked in your career, the commonality with all these issues is that they set us back. And in the aftermath of these things, we're left with two options, two options. The first option is to sink even deeper into what has set us back and to allow ourselves to stay there and wallow there. The second option is this, to bounce back from that or to come back to where we were. Or even better, a more renovated place of where we were. And that, that second option is the definition of resilience. Professor Angie Hart said it like this, resilience is overcoming adversity whilst also potentially changing, and this is a part I like, or even dramatically transforming that adversity. I'll say that one more time. Resilience is overcoming adversity while also potentially changing or uh, dramatically transforming aspects of that adversity. Resilience is to come back, to come back to wholeness, to come back to life, to come back to dreams and aspirations and hopes and desires. Someone say to come back. To come. But the truth is, it's not always as easy as saying it, is it, church? Can I be real with you guys today? Is that okay? Is that okay? Can I? Sometimes it's just plain difficult. Sometimes it's hard, it's tiresome. Sometimes coming back feels like trying to rise from the dead. 
But do you know what the good news is? The good news is that we serve a God who demonstrated the greatest comeback in human history. Amen? We serve a king who, though he was beaten, though he was bruised and battered, was not broken. Beaten, battered, bruised, he was not broken. We serve a Lord that received punches to his face, spit on his body, nails in his hands, a spear in his side, a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace who was given a crown of thorns and gave up his life on a cross only to take it back from the tomb. We serve a Lord who is fully man yet fully God. We serve a king called Jesus. I wonder if some people can celebrate Jesus with me today. Come on, we can do better than that. We can celebrate the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen. And I feel like preaching today. Because our king came back even while everything seemed over. Somebody say, it's time to come back. Guys online, if you're watching, put it in the chat, say, it's time to come back. And this is what we find in our passage in John chapter 20, the beginning of Jesus' comeback story. It's good news. But what I love about John the disciple who wrote this book is that in this greater narrative of Jesus' comeback, the greater resurrection narrative, we discover some other intricate stories kind of woven into the text, two of which are the comebacks of Simon Peter and John the disciple. Let's look at verse two again. Could you pull up verse two for me? The text reads that Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, who, by the way, is John, the writer of this book. John is that other disciple. And Mary said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where we have put him. Now, I find it really interesting that she runs to these two individuals in particular. You know, these two individuals had something to come back from too. Simon Peter is the disciple that publicly rejected Jesus. He's the one, and you might know the story when a little girl came up to Simon Peter and says, actually, aren't you the one that was do ministry with this guy. And he says, no, I don't know who that guy is. And seconds later, two more people ask him, aren't you Jesus' disciple? And he rejects him twice. And then Jesus later comes out of the interrogation, looks at Simon Peter and says nothing. And the text tells us that Simon Peter broke down and wept bitterly, full of shame. On the other hand, John, who Mary also runs to, had a different, completely reverse experience to Peter. In fact, he's the only male disciple, the only male apostle that didn't leave Jesus' side. He was there on the cross. He was there at the cross when Jesus breathed his last breath. For John, the experience is way different, but he was full of that trauma. Remember, we read this in light of Easter Sunday, but for them, it wasn't that simple. So one disciple's full of shame, the other one's full of trauma. Shame, trauma, shame, trauma. And so within this narrative of Jesus' comeback, we see two other stories of people needing their own comebacks from a place of deep adversity. And it's fascinating, church, that Mary feels led to run to them both. The thing is, she actually runs with more bad news. Mary hadn't understood the resurrection yet. So she goes and tells them, look, our enemies... They've taken the body of our Lord and we don't know where they have put him. We don't know where he is. You can kind of feel the the gasping in her breath, can't you? The panic in her voice that early Sunday morning while it was still dark. 
especially as grave robbery was so common at that time that even recently an inscription has been found in the neighborhood of Nazareth that uh, indicates Emperor Claudius, who lived, I think, AD 41 to 54, once ordered capital punishment for those convicted of grave robbery. Such was its frequency. So you can understand why Mary comes back and says, they've taken the body of our Lord Jesus. We don't know what they've put him, where they've put him. And then we read in verse 3 that Peter and the other disciple, that is John, started for the tomb. And the arrangement of the text suggests that Peter started going first. They started walking casually to the scene. And then John, perhaps in another location, or uh, just late to taking the information, kind of like me, I'm always late to news and stuff, kind of starts walking as well. But then in verse 4, we're told that both start running. Both start running. They move from walking to running as they ask these questions. Can someone really have taken Jesus' body? We're full of shame and we're full of trauma already. What is this news? And so they start running and they get going. And the writer of this story, who is John the disciple, is also running with Peter, tells us, by the way, I outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I just love this. Honestly, when I studied, I was like, it's so funny that in the midst of this great narrative, in the midst of this resurrection narrative and shame and trauma, and John says, just, by the way, FYI, I just, if you're wondering, 2,000 years later, I just want you to know that I am faster than Peter and I outrun him. Just so when you're preaching on stages 2,000 years later, you can let the people know who got there first. I just love this. So, John, if you're listening, I got you, brother. The people know. All right, so the people know. (laughs) But as funny as that part of the story is, right, as funny as that is, I couldn't help but be struck with so much emotion when I was reading this. You see, both of these disciples are trying to come back, one from shame, one from trauma. They just got the report of seemingly bad news, and as they're heading in the direction of the location, and running and making their way. Remember, we read this in light of the resurrection, right? 2,000 years later, we know the whole story, but for them, they didn't know. They just thought it was more downfall, more shame. But we know that this was the beginning of their own comebacks. A resilient comeback to encounter an empty tomb and later a risen Lord. And so ultimately, this moment they're going through isn't merely an emotional reaction, but God is sovereignly weaving their comebacks on the backdrop of Jesus' greater comeback. God was sovereignly weaving something magnificent, church. They were running into a miracle. And I feel that God wanted me to tell someone today on this topic of resilience that sometimes it doesn't always make sense in a moment. Sometimes resilience means it gets harder before it gets better. And that's the first point I want you guys to take note of today. I've got two more in the next 10 minutes, but that's the first one. Sometimes resilience means it gets harder before it gets better. And you lose that job maybe or set back in your career. And you don't want to go to that dinner because you don't want to let people know what happened. But actually, going to that place and being vulnerable and open up and telling a friend might lead to them praying for you might lead to a breakthrough. But it's actually, I, I, I know someone that's actually looking for someone just like you. Sometimes it gets harder before it gets better. Sometimes resilience doesn't look like fairy tales. 
Sometimes godly resilience means that things have to go a bit tricky before we see the outcome. It might look like going back to the doctors time and time and time again, even after them telling you it's terminal or you're not going to get better. But you come back treatment after treatment after treatment and eventually something breaks through for your family. Something breaks through for your life and you get the healing. Sometimes resilience means finding joy even though the healing hasn't come yet. Sometimes resilience looks like coming back onto your knees and praying a really difficult prayer of repentance after you did that thing or kept that attitude or the understanding that you said you would drop. Sometimes resilience means it gets harder before it gets better. I love what one author says, resilience doesn't always roar. Sometimes resilience is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. I'll try again tomorrow. And so they're running hard, and John tells us that he outran Peter. But I don't want us to miss something here, church. I don't want us to miss what's going on, because not only does resilience sometimes get harder before it gets better, resilience doesn't always look the same as other people. You see, at this point, it would be so easy for Peter to give up, right? It's like, yeah, well, John is dealing with some trauma. John is dealing with some issues, but at least it's not self-inflicted. At least he actually stood by Jesus at the tomb. At least he didn't reject him. I'm the one that rejected him. I'm the one that gave up on him. I'm the one that denied him. And so so it would be so easy for Peter just to say, do you know what? I'm going to stop running here. Let him go. He's already moving. I'm going to stop. He's thinking, John is outpacing me to the tomb. And regardless of what he sees there, he's a better man than I am. He's a better person. He's more resilient than I am. And I wonder whether you guys can relate with that church. Whether you've ever been crippled with comparison. I wonder whether we often struggle to be resilient because we're comparing the pace of our comeback to other people's. I know I've been there. I wonder whether we sometimes stop short of a miracle moment because we are constantly comparing ourselves to someone else's race. And again, I feel to tell someone today that if we are going to build this character trait of real godly resilience, we might just have to accept that our comeback stories look a little bit different. It might look a little bit different. But sometimes we're so held back by comparing ourselves with the crowd or the company we keep. I want to tell you, keep going no matter how slow you're going. For when we go back to the text, we read in verse 4 that both were running together and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And John, who reached the tomb first, bent over and looked in and saw strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. But watch this. The text then says that Peter came along and went straight into the tomb. Peter kept running. Despite the shame, despite the comparison, he kept going as slow as he was, as tedious as it got, he got there. And you know, the race isn't always to the swift, it's to the person that keeps running. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. (laughs) You sometimes forget that. Every animal was called into the ark, right? The snail included. And by perseverance, the snail reach the ark. Sometimes it might get harder before it gets better. Sometimes people might even outrun you. But keep going. Somebody say, keep going. And you know what's wonderful, guys? 
coming into landing here. Verse six goes on to say that when Peter went straight into the tomb, he saw the strips of linen lying there, just like John. But watch verse seven, because Peter doesn't just stand back, but his resiliency propels him into the tomb like a bull in a china shop. And the Bible says that the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, Peter also saw. He saw the cloth lying there in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, John, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. And he saw and he believed. Some commentators say that John didn't go in because at this point he didn't believe in the resurrection. So he didn't want to kind of go in and compromise himself by touching a dead corpse. But Peter charges in like a bull in the china shop. And he doesn't allow comparison to stop his race, but he goes in. And I love this. Even though Peter was behind him, he goes beyond him. Even though Peter was lagging behind, he goes beyond And the Bible tells us that he sees way more, beautifully more than John. He not only sees the strips of linen lying there, but he he also sees the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. He sees way more. Peter's hope carried him further than John's speed. And that's a word for someone today. Perhaps all you need is a little bit of hope. Perhaps God wants you to spiral upwards in hope rather than downwards with shame. But hope can even see heaven through the thickest clouds, I believe. And you see, this resurrection story, this wonderful discovery that Peter makes, leads at least one of them to faith. And they begin to conclude that, well, his body couldn't have been stolen. Because one, if they had stolen Jesus' body, they wouldn't have left his clothes there. They just would have taken his body as is. And two, even if they did take off his clothes, they wouldn't have kept it nicely folded on the side. It would have been scattered all over the tomb. So they're like, his body wasn't stolen. And they conclude that his body wasn't taken by friends either because if, they had taken, if friends had taken Jesus' body, they would have carried him and his clothes because it would be great shame to unmask their saviour's nakedness. But the clothes are there, lying in good shape. And this leads me to my final point today, church. Resilience is always empowered by the peace and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus' body was risen. Jesus' body had been risen, but it wasn't just a normal comeback. It wasn't just some kind of, he fell down, he got up. It was with such great tranquility. Sometimes we think about the resurrection like this. We think that it was a wrestling match between Jesus and the devil. But the Bible tells us that Jesus kind of stood up and folded his place where he had been resting for a little while and just left. Great tranquility. Jesus rose from the dead. His comeback was full of calmness, full of power, and full of the Holy Spirit. There was no need for him to do anything but simply be who he was. And I wonder whether that speaks to the Christian life in general. I wonder whether that speaks to us who time and time again try to be resilient in our own strength, but all we need is the Holy Spirit. All we need is the Holy Spirit to get us to get up. And again, we fold our cloths in the places that we've been resting in shame or guilt or failure or remorse. We fold it and we get up and we go again. I wonder whether that's for us today. You see, it's really easy as I land. I'm going to ask some of the worship guys to come up. It's really easy to be resilient out of our own self, out of an idea of being self-righteous, 
It's very easy to do that. You can actually be resilient uh, by this kind of survivor spirit. Kent Hughes puts it like this. Sometimes we're resilient out of this place of ourselves and we end up being self-pitying and angry at those who would not shoulder the burden with us. We become inwardly proud of our own grit. But that is not the way of the spirit, church. The spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The way of the spirit is one of great endurance, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You see, we need the inner graces of the spirit, the sweet strength of God's Holy Spirit for the true key to spiritually coming back from anything is to encounter a God who outlasts everything. Amen? I mean, why don't we stand as we welcome this God who overcomes everything? Why don't we stand as we welcome the Holy Spirit? Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.